Hi FM presents South African politics and news with the South African Institute of Race Relations. The IRR show, independent, relevant and real, is hosted by Sarah Gon every Tuesday morning from 9 to 10, promoting life, liberty and property rights. Good morning, good morning and welcome to this chilly, typically winter's day in Gauteng. But the good news is that we have just passed the winter solstice, so believe it or not, the days will start to get longer. It will take a while before we really aware that they're getting longer, but it's a, it's a, it's a psychological milestone, and I think we, we all need some uh, uplifting milestones to, uh, to get us through the day. First up, I just in reference to all the news items on, the, uh, on, the, on COVID, on the third wave and the pressure that it is putting on, well... It seems that more than 200 doctors are still waiting for the Department of Health to place them for their community service. Um, And Gauteng Health facilities are operating below capacity because there's a lack of personnel. And the reason they give for for the slow pace of allocation, they don't have enough money to pay the doctors. And this information followed a question in Parliament by the Democratic Alliance, which shows that the ANC has spent close to 1 billion rand on a 10-year-long agreement deploying Cuban health practitioners to South Africa. So, oh dear, I don't know know what to say about this. Uh, The ideology trumps practical obligation to, to one's own doctors, and we just carry on trying to deal with a, a, a third wave that is really quite uh, quite vicious. And the problem is it, it's, it's typical of the state of the health services in the country, and I will certainly go into a great more detail with uh, my guest later on. Um, the other thing is, and uh, you know I, I'm not a entirely trusting of anything that the president says to us. Um, But we go so far as to say that he misled us when he said that the ANC would not support the EFF's proposal to make the state custodian of all land, as this would kill entrepreneurial spirit. Now, the... We know that there's been a tussle between the ANC and, and, and the EFF in the recent while because the EFF wants total custodianship, which I'll go into, um, and the ANC says no, it would only deal with the certain issues. And the reason there's the fight is because the ANC needs the EFF to support it with a vote in Parliament to actually pass the legislation expropriating property without compensation. Now, custodianship goes one further than expropriation Essentially, no ownership passes from the from the owner of land to the government. The government essentially takes literally custodianship. It looks after the land on behalf of, of the country, and it doesn't have to pay anything for doing so. Um, we have that situation currently with mining rights and water rights, and if anything would be an, uh, off-putting to investors, it would – well, many things we do that are off-putting to investors. This would be the, the key thing. And uh, what I will do is, after the first break, I will go into some of our responses to this bizarre and dangerous situation. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008.
just to get back to the expropriation and custodianship issue, um, we responded to a range of issues in, uh, regarding this flip, apparent flip-flopping of the ANC and the EFF, but we really say that there's no flip-flopping at all because what the what we're saying is that the, I suppose essentially uh, the president lied to us because he can't he if he didn't know what his committee was doing with regard to the amendment of the constitution on this issue, then he's completely incompetent and he's been completely silent. And if he did know, then he was being completely dishonest to us because the committee has, con- has without interruption, been heading towards the end of the process by adding custodianship to the legislation. Um, so I don't know if we're being had or whether the government's just communicating badly, but I, I'm, I'm not inclined at this stage to give them the benefit of the doubt. You have to remember that the, the ANC's objective to, in amending the Constitution is not land reform, specific, uh, predominantly, but rather the nationalization of financial services and the private healthcare sectors. And the reason it's doing this is because in order to prevent the ANC from splitting, it needs to feed its cadre deployment networks. Um, revenues, tax revenues are, are failing, so the the amounts available to the cadres is, is flagging. Should should it fail to do so, what it will do is it will simp- it, it will simply nationalise banks, so all the banks will become a central bank, and it will nationalise pension funds to become a sort of national. Um, social grant system that uh, you know that will, will make up for what they they can't obtain through taxation. So the reality is that land is probably in the overall scheme of things pretty much the least of it. Um, there was a quite a we were quite amused. There was an article um, by Melanie Fulvutz in News Twenty Four. And she was saying that the DA should really support the ANC in this vote on land expropriation, on expropriation without compensation, because otherwise, if they have to go with the, with the EFF, they will be obliged to vote for custodianship or the whole thing will fall away. Now, perhaps let's call this a little bit of political naivety in that you don't vote it is not the DA's role as official opposition to get the the president or the ANC out of trouble. And as I've indicated before, that we don't think they're actually really in trouble to start with. They're going for the for the whole hog. But in any event, can you imagine that unless the opposition the the official opposition actually supported most of what the ANC is doing, to do so in the face of the opposition it has shown ever since this legislation was first mooted, would be such an abandonment of principles, it would be unconscionable. And uh, the DA would may as well shut up shop as a political party. So the answer to that is no. Um, we, we will have to fight the legislation if it goes through because of the ANC and the EFF. Um, or perhaps there will be another reason it won't go through. Whatever it is, the fight has to continue and uh, as many people and particularly businesses as will, as will get involved in this must come on board um, we 
I think we spoke last week about the intention to rename Smuts Hall at at UCT. Um, the hall, the, which is a residence of the of the university, was set up, was called or named after Jan Smuts. I think it was in 1950. He had been a student and a graduate of uh, UCT. The decision has been taken, unsurprisingly, to rename Smuts Hall. But they said it would be re- it, it would stop being called Smuts Hall with immediate effect. Um, but because they haven't decided what what it will be called, I think that they're calling it Upper Campus Residence or Hostel or something like that in the interim. Now, you know, the, 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 it's not going to even debating the, the nature of the resolution uh, um, and the lack of historical appreciation. Because people are sort of so hurt and so angered by the existence of the name, it has to stop being used immediately. Wow. Um, what can one say? These are the future academic brains and leaders of the country, and this is the best that they can possibly do. I just want to make a little comment on the death of Zambian leader Kenneth Kaunda at the age of 97. Um, the Every obituary I've read of him has been absolutely in praise of the man. Um, Zambia's fa- founding father, giving support to um, independence movements in South Africa, Zimbabwe, Namibia, etc. Um, the latest one by Adekeo Adebajo in the Business Day reads, Kenneth Kaunda leaves legacy of stellar contributions to Southern Africa's liberation. To put uh, a not a, such attractive gloss on this, as is my wont, 97-year-old President Kaunda ruled as president for nearly 40 years. Now that in itself says probably all there needs to be said about his his uh, presidency over the people of Zambia. And the other thing that uh, that is not referred to, and also I haven't seen it referred to, is the fact that in employing command economy policies, essentially Marxist-style economics, he absolutely immiserated the people of Zambia. And it's been taken to his, it's been taken up by his successors since he left power uh, in a in a very sort of haphazard way, depending on who's been in power, to move to a more market-related economy, something that would benefit the people more. And whatever he may have done for other people's independence movements, he sure didn't really do it for his, for his own. Um, and then I just want to mention and perhaps refer you to an article uh, by Carol Payton in today's Business Day, in which she basically talks about the fact that Provin Gordon, she, she, the heading goes, Provin Gordon's breathtaking manipulation of the Treasury over SAA. And I won't uh, go into in much detail, but basically what she's saying is that the 67.1 billion rand that we've paid to SA over the past 20 years, not only could have resulted, could have resulted in several airlines having been bought for that amount, but that what she was saying is that it was breathtaking the manner in which it was obtained. She describes that Gordon as having pulled off what can be described either as a cynical manipulation of the treasury or the work of a master political operator. 
admirably single-minded in getting what he wants. The the Treasury was sidelined at every decision point in the process. I recommend you read the article. It certainly, uh, I think it would confirm a certain amount of views. And with that, we go to the next ad break. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. We have had Estelle on before a few months ago when we asked, which she talked about the dreadful crisis regarding water in the Eastern Cape and both the, the, the appalling effect on people as well as the fact that the only entity that was doing work that actually got water to the people in any form whatsoever was the, uh, was the gift of the givers. And now it seems she has turned her sights onto the health care system, uh, which I think is probably a strong way of saying it. But she did it originally. She did. She's done three articles, and I'll, I'll pull from those articles um, what she was looking at. Her first article in uh, at the end of March this year was essentially an open letter to the to the our former suspended. I'm not quite sure what the right term is. Minister of Health. Uh, Dr. Zwellian Kize. And if you remember, he, at some point, he, I think early, no, early into the pandemic last year, he flew down to the Eastern Cape to sort, to try and sort out the, the terrible lack of, of any provisions whatsoever to deal with the, uh, pandemic. And, um, I suppose a year later, or a little under a year later, she's written this open letter. And she's saying to him that, you know, things haven't gone as he planned and that he should really come back um, because things are now at breaking point. She said, you see it in the eyes of the remaining doctors and nurses. As a doctor yourself, you know that what it sounds like when family members cry over a deceased loved one. It is a sound that is now fam- familiar in the passages of our province's hospitals, but not for the familiar reasons of death, trauma or terminal illness. Over and over, doctors and nurses have to say to family, we are sorry. There was no space in the intensive care unit. We couldn't operate because the unions are keeping the anaesthetist out of the hospital. After two years of waiting, your child will die because we cannot operate anymore. We have no space for your newborn in ICU, and there are no nurses to open the paternity ward, so you must have your baby on a chair. It has become too dangerous for young cancer patients to be admitted because their ward has been infected with antibiotic-resistant bacteria. The the system is breaking the healthcare workers. She still reports upon the the sheer anger and despair that that she categorizes as turning into a sort of malignant resignation. which is actually quite a terrifying concept because it, it really suggests that the, the situation will actually completely grind to a, a halt. She says that um, there are med- medical, medico-legal lawsuits stacked against doctors. Um, when they ask for more f- staff, they get flown to be sure to talk to the, to the senior administrators just to be told that their case notes are deficient. Um, things like their attempts at resuscitation are interrupted because the clerk only pitched up for work twice a week and did not order the right equipment. Um, and she says, and this is this is poignant. 
if it weren't so so dreadful. Nurses and doctors know that there is no money. However, there was money for luminous jackets proudly sporting the words, quote, COVID response, close quote, as if it was an accident on the highway. But a highly qualified neurosurgeon leaves after three years of working 24-7 because he has zero assistance. And there's no money to deep clean the hospital world full of ill children. She quotes his own words back to him by saying that before the unspeakable horror of the second wave of COVID-19 infections in the Eastern Cape, Mkiza himself said, you take over when you get to a point where there's a whole breakdown of management. There's reluctance to follow directions and instructions. There's an internal ability for people to be cooperative. Now, there he's talking about the central government taking over the functions of a the health system or a healthcare depart- a health department that is just not functioning anymore. And what essentially Estelle is saying is that when he, when he visited last March, there was no, um, by then there was certainly, it, it was completely dysfunctional, but he did nothing. And it was quite interesting because he went down and he sort of, I remember him sort of berating uh, medical personnel for not having Things more in, better in place to deal with with COVID, but in fact, he, he all he was doing was telling a, a health system that wasn't really working that they should have been working, and yet he's done nothing to uh, to assist them in this regard, not not before and not since. Um, and then Estelle so refers to something called the Cost Containment Committee, which he describes in an impenetrable fortress of bureaucracy. And it's probably the most unsuccessful in the committee in the country to date, given that the current debt of the department has ballooned to four billion rand in unpaid bills. So, I mean, I like that idea, the cost containment committee that contains no cost. I mean, it's almost, it's, it's Orwellian. It, it's, it's got a, a sort of Marxist government quality about it. Um, She then says, um, while they most often rely on a strategy of not communicating at all, what they would do is delay taking a decision on clinical posts, this is the committee, for months. And when the end of the financial year strikes, they would tell those who have become desperately harassing them that the post has become unfunded as it wasn't used. And that that, that in itself is is worthy of criminal action. She then essentially ends by asking, when does the right to health care become an empty promise, Minister? Well, I think it became an empty, promise, an empty promise a long time ago. But she says, is it when 66% of patients in a rural hospital die of COVID-related diseases because help didn't come in time? Or was it when you discovered, Dr. Nkise, that they were lying about the true death rate in the province? What well, doesn't get reported can't hurt anyone, right? During the second wave, when you visited, COVID wards were cleaned and presented to you as if they were operational, but they weren't. One did not even have to have, one did not even have oxygen or buckets for cleaning. One hospital had no phones. Premier of the province defended the health MEC by saying that she did her best. Well, God help us as to what her best might have been. Um, but what they did to, to protect healthcare is, is a bit of a mystery, as uh, as anyone can can gain from this. 
um, I, I, I don't know whether to laugh or cry when she says, after two years in the saddle of this, quote, lame horse, the MEC could not even sign off a staff organogram that took, that took a preceding decade to draw up. The, the healthcare system has become a battlefield for pensioners who cannot get their chronic medication. Um, there's the cost of transport to go to. People in their 70s and 80s have to walk many kilometers to get to clinics. Mobile clinics are operating without water and, and electricity and with no stock of antivirals and TB medication. There are no toilets. And when patients do line up and wait in vain for a doctor, they are told that they must try again another day or write a letter to put it in the suggestions box. Hey, I've got a suggestion. Let's have some doctors in a hospital. Patients in hospitals don't often get food. So it's, it's really, it's, it's it's the stuff of absolute and utter nightmares. Um, the, the the she goes on, and I won't go on into the details of the of the travails that women face with regard to giving birth or having premature babies looked after, and the lack of of equipment that goes with it. It's actually just 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 frightening. Um, she says that the the drainage systems in Port Elizabeth or Cabrera's provincial hospitals become infested with superbugs. And nothing anybody does, nobody has done anything to replace it for, for the past 10 years. Um, they end up being stuck in what they call another year of, quote, give the new MEC a chance. It's just a layer of humongous glutinous bureaucracy as far as I'm concerned. And she then essentially goes on to ask, and I won't go into the, any further detail on this particular one, when is the situation going to change? When are you going to take over the administration of the hospital? She writes a similar article three months later in June and uh, says that our hospitals have become the place from which hope flees when people need it most. Um, so as you can imagine, it's deteriorated even further if that was even possible that there's uh, that there's anything further further deterioration to take place they've resisted answering questions about when the department of health will be put in, uh, into into administration then in on the 19th last week I think, yeah just last week she wrote another article and said that we have asked the minister of health well Zuelim Kizi, who's now on special leave, 89 times what about what he's going to do about the health services in the Eastern Cape. And the number of times he has asked, answered in response to this has been zero. It, it's, she talks about, you know, between the time of her March 21 article and l- late June, that in the three months that that have elapsed. At least six newborn babies have died. Special services for children with cancer are collapsing and a dangerously low number of COVID beds are available in one of the metros. The answer to that, no answer at all. She makes the point, which I think is, should have been, which is pertinent and has been pertinent for a while, that Mkise was has been called upon to resign or be fired over the digital vibes 
corruption scandal. But in reality, what he should be fired for is the way he has mishandled the Eastern Cape and probably much else besides. I know that health is a is a provincial competence, so essentially the running of hospitals is within the domain of the province. But the central health department has the overriding obligation to make sure that things do not go as disastrously wrong as this. And I just have to use the word esidemeni to give a sense of that confusion and mess between national government trying to sort it out and provincial government causing the mess in the first place. So it it, it is a truly truly desperate, desperate situation. And I think the health minister should resign anyway. And to have the Minister of Tourism acting as the Minister of Health doesn't make any sense to me. It just doesn't. It's too serious an issue to give to someone who's still running another portfolio and has no experience of medicine. And on that cheery note, I'll take you to our next ad break. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. I'd like to just talk briefly about a campaign that that we are organizing, um, which basically runs along the lines. We spoke brief, we spoke of it last week, but we, we're taking it further of the fact that we, we've called the, the campaign racism is not the problem. And by that, we don't mean that there is no racism and that racism where it occurs is not a problem. But what we're saying is that unlike the attitudes of many of our politicians who are using racism as a, as a whole reason to sow division and blame our ills on something as, as evil and nasty as racism, that is just that is a ruse. That is that is what we call race hustling, and uh, it, it's used to 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 basically blame scope, esca- scapegoat another group of people for the uh, for the uh, problems that we face. So we've launched this campaign, and if you would like to find out more about it, um, I'd suggest go to the website, which is www. Racism is not the problem. Co.za sounds lengthy, but uh, it says what it is. Um, there, there was a, a good news story in uh, in regard to to the health uh, in the health uh, sphere, and that is that a Zimbabwean schoolboy who was mauled by a hyena in the face and lost an eye in the process has been brought to South Africa. Uh, to have facial reconstructive surgery. It's really unfortunate because it's, I I very much doubt that there's any uh, fault involved since um, he was attacked by a hyena while asleep at an all-night church gathering outside Harare. How sad is that? And clearly the, the, the injuries is extensive because judging by the photographs of, of his bandaging, you can literally just see space to breathe and, 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 and one eye. So I, it's a lovely story despite the fact that uh, the poor, the poor child is going to have probably extensive and painful surgeries to try and deal with, with the trauma. It's an example of, I think where South Africa really does best, and that is when particularly it's private citizenry 
um, or organizations sort of pull together to assist a child in need in a in a dreadful situation who's not even a South African who's who's come from a, a, a neighboring uh, neighboring country and particularly a, a very poor neighboring country. So I one up one up to. Uh, uh, to Mediclinic in Santon, who will be uh, looking after him and uh, preparing him, and uh, more power to to their to their elbows in in trying to give the boy his life back, as uh, as one could say. Then, just for the sheer fun of it, um, um, two two match uh, test series in in the Caribbean. We haven't been. Successful in the test series for long, for a long time. We've had the most grotesque politics that, that, uh, a sporting body can possibly have. And we won the first test match comfortably and convincingly. Some good batting by Quinton de Kock and, and bowling by, uh, by young Rabada. But Yesterday, the the fourth day of the second test had its own magic. Our, our batting hadn't been very good in the first innings, and uh, we were out for, I think we just scraped in the, about mid-150-odd, hundred, hundred I'm not sure, what, I can't remember exactly what the amount is. But what we did see was young Keshav Maharaj, who is a slow, is a spin bowler, um, he looks like he's about 12 years old, but I suppose most people look like that to me. He scored a hat-trick. Now, for those who are not okay with cricket or don't care one way or the other, a hat-trick is a situation where you take three wickets in a row. So three, you bowl three balls and each ball results in a wicket. Now, the, the astonishing thing about this is that there, he is only the second bowler in South African history to have bowled hat-trick in a test match the last apparently was done about 60 years ago that is quite something and I must say as, as a South African who's feeling all the benighted ills of our country and sometimes just want to sit down on a couch with a cup of tea and stare blankly it was actually a lovely moment watching the sponta- spontaneity of the, of the, of the really Heartfelt uh, celebration over Maharaja's uh, hat trick. Um, it was almost childlike, but it was it was absolutely delightful, and uh, it was one. It, it was just wonderful to watch a situation where a unalloyed pleasure was expressed by a multiracial cricket team, and that cricket team had largely displayed a huge amount of ch- talent, and nobody. Nobody cared who had done it, what color they were. None of those things mattered in the moment. In the moment, Maharaj was the center of attention that some of our best um, cricketers, the, the Cullises, the A.B. de Villiers, etc., have, have never managed to achieve. It was the, the sort of... Um, uh, Dale Stane, perhaps he's, he's most he comes to mind uh, most as a, as our once premier uh, premier bowler. Never managed to achieve it. A, a number of people have taken two wickets in a row, but three wickets in a row is is special special beyond words. And then just on a, a light a light note on 
another sports story, and that is that uh, Louis Oersthuizen, our uh, one of our premier golfers, um, came second in the U.S. Open. Um, apparently, going into the seventeenth hole, he was tied with the ultimate winner, who was Jean Ram of of Spain. Um, so he became sec- he took second place. So. What that means, however, is that puts him in very good company alongside Ernie Els and Gary Player as the most, as having the most second place finishes of all time. I'm not, I don't think it's very consoling, but to be honest, in the game of golf, to come in, to finish second in, in, uh, in tournaments like this is a, is, is a, is, a, is an enormous achievement. Um, and for his second place finish, he earns 19.2 million rand. So, nice work if you can get it. Not the worst thing in the world. And uh, let's see how the uh, how the how the golfing year continue and the cr- cricketing year continue, given the pandemic. Interestingly, the I saw a report this morning that said that 45% of Americans have been completely vaccinated. 45%. I think we need another ad break. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. Now for a bit of really good news. Uh, did I say that with a great enough uh, level of sarcasm? It's report by EWN that it has been eight straight days without power cuts, with many South Africans wondering why we haven't been hit with power blackouts. Isn't that wonderful? You know, you, you don't, we've passed the point where you wonder why we're having blackouts, you, you, to the point of why aren't we having blackouts? Um, it's absolutely astonishing. Uh, it says that at one point this month, 15 generating u- units were offline at ESCOM's aging power plants. And what they basically say is that they've managed to return to service unit one of Kuburg, which generates 900 megawatts of electricity. Um, and that on its own takes away a stage of load shedding. That's interesting because then we get back to the debate of nuclear, which I still think is, would have been the best way to go. Cheap, not, not cheap to build, but cheap to, to run, clean, safe, despite what, uh, uh, the, the climate pessimists say. Um, He's, <laughs> he said that the Kuberg win and other small victories had all added up and, not, and there had now not been a need to turn off the power for more than a week now. He said that the crucial machines, this is the, rep- the spokesman at ESCOM, were holding up and at the moment the unit was supplying 30,000 megawatts of power, which increased during the evening peak. Manchanche said that they had not skipped on maintenance either. Wow, not skint. Well, okay. Well, I'm glad to hear that. We're doing plenty of maintenance at the moment. At this particular point, we have 3,000 megawatts on planned maintenance and another 10,900 on breakdowns. So that gives you 14,000 megawatts not available. But he warns, and we'll be terribly relieved to hear this. He warns, however, that as the country was still in the grip of the winter period, no kidding, which automatically ramped up power usage, ESCOM may need to implement power cuts at any time. While we've made it through eight straight days without rolling blackouts, which is probably what they should more properly be called, rolling blackouts, 
many communities are still being hit with load reduction as ESCOM tries to protect its network from overloading in high-density parts of the country. All I can say in response to this is with regard to the provision of energy by the South African government, um, if it would be funny if it weren't so serious and perhaps the best word to describe our response to it is one of schadenfreude. In the meantime, can I recommend that you go to dailyfriend.co.za where we have all our articles, videos and podcasts and once again apologize for the glitch with our guest and hope nevertheless to see you this time next week. Cheers.